Well, the, the orphan hero is a much-loved character throughout films and throughout literature. You can't miss it, really. Luke Skywalker, Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, Harry Potter, Frodo Baggins, Pip from Great Expectations, Jane Eyre, Huckleberry Finn, Oliver Twist, Cinderella, Snow White, Mowgli, Paddington Bear, Tarzan, to name but a few. The idea of a child alone in the world that is taken in, that is fostered or adopted and then makes good, is a dominant theme throughout many of our our most loved stories. Why is that the case? Why is it such a strong recurring theme? Well, perhaps it has to do with the kind of romantic rags to riches dream that we tend to aspire to. Perhaps it's because secretly we always want the underdog to win occasionally. I guess that's why people go to watch Oxford United week in, week out. (laughs) Perhaps it's because when we're being faced with, with vulnerable children, we just can't help but become emotionally engaged. Maybe that idea of, of being alone haunts us. And no one is quite as alone as an orphan. Orphans are a tangible reflection of the fear of abandonment that all humans experience. That's what one... Uh, academic said about this. And I guess these kind of orphan hero stories that fill our culture should inspire us and should inspire vulnerable children everywhere. That, That change and hope and success and acceptance are possible, whatever our background. And I guess the real life stories of orphan heroes like Kate Aidy or footballer Mario Balotelli, um, show us that that it is possible for for people who have really difficult early experiences that, that, that those don't necessarily have to stop you from finding and fulfilling your real potential. But just as Mary was telling us earlier, statistically... It's true that kids in care are more, most likely to end up on the streets or in prison or in refuges. And there's a mismatch between the kind of romantic notions that we have on the silver screen and in literature and in the stories that we read in our newspapers. But what does come across loud and clear throughout all of those things is that our culture is is in search for hope. The hope that things could be better. The hope that in this world it's not just the strong who survive. It's not just the rich who make good. That pervasive sense of of hope rings out loud and clear throughout all those stories and our newspaper stories too. There's a deep-seated longing within us as as human beings that abandonment, murder, malice need not have the final word. And actually I think the kind of fascination that there is with adoption comes about because adoption symbolises that possibility of, of turning deeply instilled fear and abandonment and aloneness into life changing hope. 
And I think at the same time, there is something about the gospel itself that is implicit in every adoption. It's, it's as if the, an adoption is a kind of mini parable of the grace of God. Every time there is a, a genuine adoption that, that occurs. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul uses the, the, the family structures in the ancient world to help us to understand the incredible, incredible changes that occurs when any of us becomes a Christian. Now Romans 8 is an epic chapter and we're just going to be zooming in and looking at, at just um, a handful of verses, hardly doing justice to the flow of, of, um, of this chapter or how it fits into Paul's great letter, Romans. Um, Sunday evenings we're going through Romans, but I think at the rate we're going to, it will be 2017 by the time we get up to chapter 8. But, um, but the, the two big kind of intertwined themes that trace through this chapter are the work of the Spirit on the one hand, and the security of the Christian, on the other hand. And, again, we're not going to be able to trace those in any real depth here this morning. But what I want us to to notice, what I want you to see, is uh, from verses um, 14 to, to 17, is that by the Spirit we move from being a slave who fears to being a child who delights. So by the work of of the Spirit in our hearts, we, we move from being a slave who fears to being a child who delights. So first of all then, a slave who fears. And uh, a, a question as we start thinking about that is, is how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Uh, those who've been along in, on Sunday evenings um, will, will know that in those early chapters, Paul is pretty brutal in his assessment of, of human beings. Uh, Here's just a handful of phrases that he uses to describe us in the early chapters of Romans. He says, we suppress the truth because of our wickedness. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. We worship created things instead of the creator. He says, we're like sheep who've gone our own way. He says, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Pretty damning words from him. And uh, he's, he's wanting to, to show us that actually, in our very nature, we are slaves to sin. And we are slaves to the consequences of sin. By nature, he says, we are objects of wrath. So we find ourselves controlled by a nature that is in rebellion against God, that says, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways, S-I-N. And that we're facing the consequences of that rebellion, of that sin. God's just anger. Now how does all that tally with your own reflection of yourself? I guess most of us like to 
think of ourselves as, well, okay, really. I guess, uh, you know, I guess I have bad days every now and then, but, you know, I've got a good heart. I'm, I'm okay. But the truth is, we're not okay. We don't have good hearts. We may very occasionally have a good day, but we're not okay. Um, Dan sent me a link to a, a video, um, 3 to one Gospel, um, when you're at home. Google search that and, and watch it. And uh, one of the bits in there said that, that as human beings we're like Christmas trees. I don't know if anyone's got their Christmas tree up um, already. I noticed a few on my way into work as I'm on the bus. But, uh, but yeah, this video says we're, we're like Christmas trees. No matter how much kind of tinsel and prettiness and baubles and things you, you put on a Christmas tree, at the end of the day, it's, it's dead. And in a matter of weeks and months, it's just going to be at Redbridge Park and Ride, <laughs> decaying. It's a pretty bleak assessment of us as, as human beings. But Paul's wanting to say here, that's what we were. We were slaves to our sin, slaves to the consequences um, of our sin as well. And one consequence of our sinful nature is fear. And fear manifests itself in, in different ways for different um, ones of us here. It could be a fear of not measuring up to other people's expectations. It could be a fear of failure. It could be a fear of letting someone down. It could be a fear of getting caught out. Fear of financial ruin. Fear of the future. Fear of death. Those fears can have a profound shaping effect on our lives. I don't know if any of you um, saw um, Steve Jobs, um, Apple's creator guru, uh, if you saw his last interview before, before he died. Um, it's really interesting um, watching. But for him, one of the, one of the aspects of the interview, he talks about how um, uh, if you get a Mac product, it's difficult to find the power off switch on a Mac product. You can't easily see how to turn off a Mac product. And that's because Steve Jobs was terrified of the idea of of shutting down. And that fear of of shutting down profoundly influenced the the design of, of all his products. So I wonder, what fears still haunt you or shape your behaviour? I remember Peter Comont saying from this very spot, asking the question, um, how much of our lives is quietly shaped by fear? It's a very, very searching question. So that's one consequence of our slavery to sin, is, is fear. But of course, the, the ultimate consequence of our slavery to sin is, is judgment and wrath. And we know from scripture that God is just. He can't ignore sin. He can't just kind of sweep it under the carpet and 
and forget about it. He's not a kind of kindly grandfather figure who kind of ruffles our hair, calls us a little scamp, gives us a word that's original and tells us to, to run along when we do something wrong. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has that great vision of, of the holiness and grandeur of God, he is absolutely blown away. The absolute moral perfection that he sees there, he is just, wow, blown away. All he can do is fall on his face, just completely aware of his utter unworthiness in the face of that moral perfection and beauty and and holiness. In Hebrew, if you want to really underline a point, you repeat it twice. The winged creatures in that vision say God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah, when he's there, just, he, he, he can't comprehend it. He can't even, it's, it's too incredible for him. And it's not until he has that profound experience of grace, when his sin um, is, is dealt with, that he's able to, to stand up and to talk um, and to go and serve God. Now, we might get a bit uncomfortable thinking about wrath and justice and sin and, and those kind of things. And we much prefer thinking about God's love instead of God's anger. But actually, God's hatred of sin shows the depths of his love. Could you really worship a God who didn't get angry at child abuse? who wasn't really that bothered about the Hitlers of this world. The opposite of wrath is not happiness. The opposite of wrath is indifference. And uh, throughout scripture, you can trace a tension right in the heart of God a tension between how he can show mercy and justice at the same time. How can he satisfy his, his wrath and show mercy? You can trace it right throughout history. You can trace it right to the pivot point for the whole of history. The moment where wrath and mercy met. The cross of Jesus because what's happening there is Jesus is, is there as, as our substitute. He's there taking the wrath that, that we deserved for our sin, for our wickedness, for our rebellion. Jesus takes that on himself to satisfy God's wrath. But at the same time, to show us unfathomable mercy. So the cross shows us on the one hand, how seriously God takes sin. And on the other hand, it shows us how much he loves us. And the result of of Jesus' death there on that cross in our place, right at the start of this chapter, chapter, Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And we move from being slaves to, who fear to being children who are adopted into God's family and who delight. What a transition. From outsider to insider, from slavery to security, from fear to family. F.S. Bruce, in his commentary um, on Romans, says that in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adopted father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. So this truth that Paul's expounding here is absolutely mind-blowing. We're by nature slaves to our rebellion and to our sin and to the consequences of that. We deserve wrath and punishment. But God, in his infinite grace and kindness, adopts us into his family. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, solely because of his grace. He chooses us. But I want you to notice that the language in verses 14, 15, 16, and very carefully, just have a look at that again. Verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to, to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So notice he doesn't say that the the role of the Spirit is to inform us that a kind of heavenly transaction has taken place and and now everything's all okay. It's not just a kind of doctrinal thing um, telling us some information that the Spirit does. Not that I'm whacking um, doctrine here, but but look at the the word that he says in verse 15. By him we cry, Abba. By him we cry, Abba, Father. He's saying that God's Spirit brings out such a radical transformation within our hearts that, that though we once stuck our two fingers up at God, now we, we cry, Abba. And that word that he uses, cry, is an incredibly strong word. It's actually um, used in the Gospels uh, to describe the kind of intensity of, or the, the intensity and fervour of, of cries of the demon-possessed to describe how passionate their cries and their wailings were. So do you see what Paul's saying here? By him, the Spirit works that transformation in our hearts that we cry with real passion and fervour and desperation and longing and, and hunger, that we cry out. To who? To Abba, Father. That's the Aramaic word for, for Daddy. 
It's a real picture of, of amazing intimacy here. Because who, who else used that word in their prayers in the Bible? Jesus. He's the only one who takes that word um, in his prayers. If you search through the Old Testament, you won't find anyone addressing God as Father in their prayers. Nobody takes that, that up. God himself takes that label up and applies it to himself in connection with um, talking about saving Israel, his, his firstborn son. So that the, God the Father takes on that label talking about him, himself and his kind of covenant faithfulness in connection with his kind of saving work and, and keeping his promises. And no self-respecting Jew would ever dream of addressing God with such a familiar term. So this is absolutely revolutionary. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that was absolutely revolutionary. The holy, majestic, awesome creator and sustainer of the universe that, that we should call him Father, Daddy, is absolutely mind-blowing. And I don't know which is more amazing. The fact that we can approach him with confidence now as our Father or the fact that he invites us to and calls us to in the first place. But what I want to, I guess what we want to, to see here is just the enormity of the transformation that's going on here. And the fact that it's by the Spirit that, that it happens. The Spirit, by Him, we cry. He moves us in our hearts to, 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 to cry out to God our Father. And that's not because of anything we've done. It's not because we deserve it. All we contribute to, to our amazing new status is the sin and the shame that needs to get dealt with. And that's what drives out fear. It changes everything. This new identity we have. This glorious identity we have. There's no need for us to prove ourselves to anyone anymore. This truth liberates us to, to live wholeheartedly for God and to, to love other people selflessly as well. And it's this that is the basis and starting point for us in our service for him. Because we are his children, we've got a responsibility to live up to the family likeness. We don't do, do good work to try and earn favour or to twist his arm. Because he first loved, we are enabled to love others. And we are to extend that hope to others. So we've got the, the ultimate death to life, rags to riches story. We were lost and alone and now we belong to an eternal family. We've Above all, or above all others in society, we know that life is not about the survival of the fittest. 
but it's about the salvation of the most unlikely. We have lived in fear and now we eagerly await our adoption in great hope. And that's the kind of starting point as we, as we, as we think about the needs that there are around about us. Because there are children living in this town who don't know that kind of hope. There are children who don't know that their future can be better than their past. They don't know that the abuse and neglect they've experienced doesn't need to be their future. There are children in this city who are wondering if anyone will love them. There are children in this city with broken bones because a parent has attacked them. There are children with broken hearts because their parents have never told them that they love them. There are children in our town who are wondering if their learning difficulties will mean no one will want them to be their mummy or daddy. There are children in this town who are wondering if they will have to be separated from a sibling, the only person in the world they know loves them. There are children in Oxford who have never been to the seaside never been shown how to ride a bike, never had someone sit and read a book with them. There are children in Oxford who, if no one adopts them, are likely to end up homeless or in prison because they want, once they age out of the care system, that's the most common future for them. Can we give hope to the children who have been neglected or abused in our city? having received this kind of of love, having experienced this kind of adoption, is God calling us to show the same kind of love to the needy children in our time? Is he calling some of us to, to step forward and become foster carers? To help children in transition who've been removed from their families to experience a, a safe home while their future is decided? Is God calling some of us here to adopt the children in our town that nobody wants? Is God calling us as a church to be a big adopted family and to stand alongside and offer genuine practical help to those that choose to open their homes and their hearts to the needy children in our town. 